This episode is brought to you in part by Highland Canine LLC. They offer total solutions for law enforcement and military organizations to meet their increasingly demanding canine needs. Connect with them and see the difference at tacticalpolicek9training.com. That's tacticalpolice, the letter K, the number nine, training.com. I want to give a huge shout out to my guys at Police Canine Association. You can contact them through email at policecanineassociation at gmail.com or go to the website policecanineassociation.com or pk9a.com and check out their awesome gear. Welcome to Working Dog Radio, broadcasting the bite. All right, we're back again with another episode of Working Dog Radio, broadcasting the bite. I'm Ted Summers. With me again is Eric Stambro. Eric, what's up? Hey, uh, you know, looking forward to another great episode. Um, you know what I learned? <clears throat> Somebody told me that if if you get a, an IPA and you put a shot of vanilla vodka in it, like it's really good. So we're going to find out tonight. Holy, those both are terrible individually. So I can't, <laughs> I can't imagine them mixed together. Holy shit. Yeah, it's not <laughs> oh, bad. It's not bad. God. But yeah, we're just uh, doing our usual thing. I'm, you know, this is, uh, we're, we're recording this March 1st. I've got uh, eight more days left with the class that I got going. Um, couple guys left with some remedial due to injury and things like that that happened um so you know the usual stuff hopefully getting some dogs in from europe here pretty soon and plugging away every day yeah i'm glad to say that uh, nothing exciting has happened other than just dog training i had a dog bite through a hidden sleeve the other day but other than that it's been pretty pretty low-key so <laughs> we're uh, yeah it's good yeah, I mean, nothing exciting has happened. Dogs are finding bombs and drugs are done. Drugs and dead bodies and bugs. So, um, yeah, we've got uh, we had a couple of more dogs come in. Um, one for a personal dog that Scott's doing for somebody, and then we've got some. Uh, we're still working on the bed bug dogs. They should be done here pretty quick. But uh, outside of that, it's just same, 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 same o same o. So tonight. We have on Jason Perguson from Highlands Canine out in North Carolina. Uh, Jason, how are you? Great. I'm doing well. Hope you are. Thanks yep. for having me on. Yeah, no, it's great. Uh, Highlands Canine is one of our title sponsors. Uh, you guys do nose-to-tail training, uh, do everything from seminars to finished dogs. Um, so give us a little bit of background on how you got into canine and give us a little bit of background on how Highland started and, uh, where, what led us up to this conversation. Okay. Um, I actually started training dogs pretty early on. Actually, when I was, uh, uh growing up, we bred Labradors and, um, sold them, uh, ended up showing them, uh, that sort of led to my passion for dogs, I guess, eventually, and um, got into law enforcement as soon as I got old enough. I was in law enforcement for probably eight, nine months uh, when I got selected for a canine handler's position. They put one up 
Uh, and as you probably know, people with eight, nine months experience don't usually get picked for a canine slot. It's a pretty not, not position. Usually, yeah. And, and uh, it's pretty non, non-typical, I guess. Uh, so um, I think six people put in for it, most of which had a ton more law enforcement experience than myself. Um, but what uh, admin was looking at, I guess, was, and this is what they said, was my dog experience, and and, and they felt like there was some value there, and so they gave me uh, a shot at being a dog handler. Um, the agency had a sort of a bad taste in its mouth because um, their previous handler from a number of years prior had had done some things and gone off the rails, and, and, and they were real skeptical about getting back into the dog business again, but they took a shot at it and uh, gave me the opportunity to do it. And we were actually, actually pretty successful. Um, so uh, had uh, that going on for a number of years, uh, we ended up growing our uh, agency's dog unit, uh, ended up being the supervisor of it uh, for a number of years, uh, training dogs for the agency as well as supervising the existing dog teams. And in addition to working a dog, um, most of my work was in um, our vice tech ops unit, uh, doing snatching grabs on drug dealers, kicking in doors, search warrants, that sort of stuff. Um, so the dog was pretty valuable there. Um, got out of law enforcement, got into training dogs, uh, worked at Tar Heel for a while. Um, and then after doing that for a bit, uh, my wife and I decided to start our own thing here in North Carolina and, um, that's when we started our business about uh, 12, almost 13 years ago. Awesome, awesome. So you guys are what, Harmony, right? Harmony, it's about 26 miles north of nowhere. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, are, we truly are out in the middle of nowhere. A lot of people ask us about that. Why are you so far away from metropolitan area? We're about an hour north of Charlotte, 15 minutes north of Statesville, North Carolina. And um, people ask us why we're so far. Uh, and a lot of that's due to regulations and zoning and that sort of stuff. Everybody loves dogs, but nobody loves them next door. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, believe me, I know. Yeah. So um, one of the things that Highlands is really known for, I mean, aside from all the patrol dog stuff, is you guys do a really good job at detection work. Um, you know, we've had other guests on, and, you know, the, the, the heart and soul of police work, as much as I would – like to disagree is does detection work i mean if the dog can't use their nose that they're they're almost worthless um you know my specialty is bite work and detection but um you know i have learned to be a good detection trainer basically because i had to be and uh, you know one of the things i've always admired about the way that you guys do stuff out there is you guys produce phenomenal detection dogs so you know we haven't really talked about it a whole lot on the show yet um, and Eric, uh, Eric is also a very good detection trainer in his own right. So I kind of want to go through the process of um, where you guys start. We don't really want to talk a whole lot about a selection because we've talked about that quite a bit already on the show. And, you know, we, uh, we know the hunt and everything else. We need prey, whatever. But I kind of want to go through um, imprinting process. And then when you guys do your handler schools, you do some things that I think are fairly unique that I don't – I mean, I don't see a ton of people doing them in terms of – you know, you got your handlers working on distractions. You make your guys work on blinds all the time, um, and you focus a lot on handling as a skill rather than um, handling kind of as a 
as a certification protocol, I guess is the best way to say it, is get at what I'm going for. So start with that. So how do you guys start on the imprinting process? Um, you know, it really depends on the dog. Um, it, um, and, and, it, and it sort of depends on what our, what our end goal is, uh, with a particular dog. And we do, um, we do drug dogs, we do bomb dogs, we do cadaver dogs, we do bed bug dogs. Um, we've, we've done a lot of, over the years, a lot of specialty detection, everything from, um, um, training dogs to find, um, termites truffles um the strangest one we ever did was bat shit believe it or not um <laughs> actually trained a trained a labrador <laughs> to find bat guano uh not just from any bat but from a very specific bat and we actually had Jeez. to proof the dog off of um bat shit from from all other species of bat <laughs> holy shit um, that's a first yeah it was an, oh, man it was an endangered, uh, endangered species of bat called the Indiana bats found in the Appalachian mountain tree, uh, chain. And, uh, the environmental company out of Kentucky, uh, was looking to, uh, they did a lot of, uh, a lot of work on surveys, um, for wind farms and strip mining and that sort of stuff. And they wanted to make sure that this endangered bat wasn't in those areas where they're going to license some of those activities. So they'd done surveys, um, visual surveys, literally walking around, looking on, looking up in trees. Um, they tried sonar, they tried nets, they tried nets for a number of months, but they figured out the bats would just go around them. Uh, so then they decided to go try a dog. Um, and there were only a few places in the, in the U S who would even attempt it. And we were one of them and we got selected to do it and it worked out extremely well. Um, but it, it was a lot of work. Um, but it, but it, but it worked out. So we've done some, some pretty odd things when it comes to detection from time to time, but mostly focusing on, um, narcotics and explosive dogs. Um, so, you know, we, over the years, we've sort of, uh, put a lot of emphasis on detection and that's why we, I guess, probably do a lot of things that may seem odd, uh, or, or different than what other people are doing. Um, in that we've taken, detection dogs and detection dog teams and we sort of broken down every single aspect of it and looked at how we can make improvements on it uh and a lot of those improvements were actually a result of a lot of research uh, that we've done over the last five probably five and a half years um we spent a lot of a lot of time a lot of man hours uh, and unfortunately a lot of money uh doing tons and tons of detection research to sort of um confirm or dispel some of the old wives' tales that have been in the industry for years uh, about dogs can do this and they can't do that and they smell this and don't smell that and you can do this this way and this will work. Uh, and we were trying to um, really sort of nail down whether some of these um, ideas were truths or myths. Uh, and that's what has, I think, in large part helped us a lot with um, building what we believe to be is a better detection dog. So uh, and what are some of team. those? Uh, what are some of those myths that you guys? Because I have a feeling I know what you're going to say, but <laughs> I kind of want to hear you say it. So <laughs> those like um, the two big ones. Well, <laughs> two big ones. Um, well, I don't know which ones you're referring to, so I'll, I'll throw a couple out there. Okay. One of them was the amount of time that it takes for a dog to have fluency in a particular odor. How much time does it take to imprint a dog? Uh, that was one of the big ones. 
um, a number of years ago, we we started uh, doing some research on uh, reliability. Um, you may or may not know that um, back in 2010, um, UC Davis did a reliability study uh, to some degree on some detection dogs, and the um, results of their uh, research was honestly pretty grim for a lot of dog teams or for those dog teams that were involved in that particular research. They had a 85, 84, 85% failure rate. Um, and that was a pretty interesting study, and a lot of people got uh, pretty upset about it and, and had a lot of dissenting opinions about it and the way it was run and those sorts of things. And, you know, a lot of people in this industry have never heard of that particular study. Um, but we were aware of it and, and looked at it and looked at it sort of in depth and um, tried to get as much information about it as we could. And, and we read a lot of the dissenting opinions on it and a lot of the articles that were published from people who were really not happy about it. And uh, we decided to <clears throat> conduct our own study. Um, and we tried to do it in a way uh, that would get rid of a lot of the arguments that people had about uh, Lisa Litt's study there at UC Davis. And we did that, um, and, and, and we had to modify the research considerably, again, to uh, be sure to get rid of a lot of those arguments. And we set it up, and, and, and we ran it for about a year and a half. And um, the... The information that we came away from that research with uh, was really, really interesting stuff. And we obviously had some failures in it, um, but we were able to learn a ton from it. And what we were able to learn from it was um, that we did, in fact, have some deficiencies sort of across the board. And we looked to identify what those deficiencies were, why they were deficiencies, and then how do we improve upon it? How do we fix the problem? And one of the issues was, um, you know, just issues with overall odor recognition. Uh, so our question was, well, were these dogs effectively imprinted? Um, and, you know, one of the th questions, big questions that came up, because there were tons of different claims, was how long does it take to imprint a dog? Um, again, a lot of, a lot of big names in the industry uh, making a lot of claims. Um, the uh, one that we heard was, you know, we can imprint a bomb dog on all odors in 45 minutes. Oh yeah. Uh, another claim. Yeah, another claim that came a number of months later at a conference was, oh well, we can do it in 30 minutes. Jeez. <laughs> and then it was 20 minutes. Uh, the last one I heard was uh, a vendor saying he could imprint a drug dog in 10. Uh, it was sort of like this, you know, sort of like space race. It was who can get there the quickest. Um, and our thought was, well, even if you could do it that quick, why would you want to? Number one, I can't even drink uh, a beer that two, fast. Yeah, <laughs> number two, number two, um, I just didn't believe it could be done that quick. Um, maybe it could, maybe it couldn't. I had a hard time buying you could do it in forty-five minutes, let alone ten. So. We set out on a, a research project. It probably took us four and a half months to um, sort of determine with one odor, uh, you know, because everybody, particularly with bomb dogs, everybody's got their, their own number, yeah. right? Our dogs are trained on nine odors, and ours are trained on 15. And 
we do ours on 25 and ours can find 50 and you know so right we didn't want to get into that so our question was what does it take with one odor we just figured out if we could figure out what it was for one odor then you could multiply that by whatever your number is for bomb dogs and um after four and a half probably five months what we what we came up with was it takes somewhere between 60 and 75 minutes time of contact with a dog for it to understand and be proficient or fluent in one odor and what we believe is that industry-wide we're seeing some people taking some shortcuts particularly on the imprinting process and we believe that that imprinting is a foundation on which we're going to build everything else through skills training and proofing the whole nine yards. And if we shortchange that, it's just going to lead to problem after problem after problem. That's good. We we talked with someone earlier, another another interview about this um, this uh, push from agencies to have a faster class, a shorter class, shorter get the dog out faster. And it's a little different for you guys because. You know, the dogs are in your kennel. They're ready when they're ready. If they're not ready, they don't get to go. But um, this this whole thing of push, 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 I myself have started dogs on boxes and gotten them going pretty good. I'm like, man, this dog's really got it. And then we go, we move on to hides, and he doesn't have it. And I got to take him back and spend more time in it. And it's frustrating, but this whole uh, we can't afford to have a guy off or we got to push faster, faster, faster is very detrimental. Yeah. yeah, and, you know, there, people are going to just have to understand this. You know, if you want it done right, there's going to have to be some commitment and investment to the cause, so to speak. Right. Yeah, I like that. That's a good way to put that. Right. So, and, you know, and Eric talked to that dude at Bravo 3. What was that guy's name um, from Battelle? Um, it was just sort of in this same conversation about the difference, you know, I mean – in the takeaway was you need to imprint the dogs on as many odors as you can get your hands on because they would not be able to recognize one smokeless versus another smokeless versus another or something. And I didn't sit through that. You did. What would, what did he say? Yeah, basically it was he, their research. They were doing research to try not to debunk, but to test the, 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 the stew hypothesis of, um, of if you train on smokeless powder, that your dog will hit every smokeless powder. Or if you train on ammonium nitrate, your dog will hit AMFO for sure or other types of ammonium nitrate other than prills. And he, he, their research showed that that not to be true. But a lot of trainers are going that way. I, I'm just going to do one type of – one manufacturer of smokeless and that will cover everybody because, because I have four weeks to get this dog done. Right. Yeah. And we've, you know, we've, we've seen it at, at, I don't know if you can use the term industry standard, but it, it seems as though it's a bit of an industry standard for people to um, combine odors together when they're imprinting or stew them together, cocktail, whatever term people are using. Um, and, uh, you know, that's another one that we looked at uh, in depth quite a bit. Uh you know, because everybody's got their own idea. Well, we're going to stew these stew these odors together because you know the dog can separate them in their mind. You know, uh, I think one metaphor or analogy that was used is you know that of stew or cake or whatever, uh, where 
uh, you walk in the house, you smell stew, dog smells peas and carrots and this and that and the other, and they can just sort of um, divide or separate these odors in their mind. Um, and um, I actually heard somebody at a conference, it was about a year ago, uh, quoting some research uh, that proved dogs could um, discriminate odors. Um, and, you know, he, he, he was standing in front of an audience saying, you know, there's proven research that says dogs can do this. Well, if you look at the research that this particular individual is citing, um, it's World War, pre-World War II um, <laughs> research that was done uh, with four odors, and it was not designed, uh, that particular research was not necessarily designed to sort of prove or disprove uh, the question that we're asking in today's time. Uh, so that was another research study that we spent a number of months on was to determine whether or not the stew method was uh, as effective as single imprint um, because that's what we'd done for years we had we had imprinted odors individually and singularly um, because we didn't know if we were mixing those together in a cocktail or stew if they created new odors or uh, had an, one odor would have an effect on the other, so we'd always sort of played it safe. Um, you know, it became pretty commonplace over the years for people to stew them together, and our question was, well, if stewing these together is just as effective as doing them individually, we can save ourselves a ton of time um, in getting these dogs out the door, you know, because that is one thing that sort of um, hurts us on the sales side is because when agencies want a dog, they want it yesterday and they're not oftentimes willing to wait for it um so we got that research going uh we worked with a number of dogs we imprinted a bunch of them with uh, uh single odor uh, one odor at a time uh individually and then we did a, a group of dogs on stew method and these were all drug dogs and uh what we found was that the stew method was not uh in any way as effective as doing them individually. Those uh, stew method dogs would uh, have a lot of trouble with uh, the others individually once they were separated. That was the first part of it. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm sort of uh, shortening this down, but uh, yeah. the second part of it was that the stew method dogs would, uh, uh, would alert on all sorts of stuff uh, that the single imprint odor dogs would not. Uh, things like uh, gel air fresheners and black powder, um, which is something we've seen over the years. Uh, drug dogs hitting on bomb motors and vice versa. And uh, all of those dogs actually had an affinity for milk chocolate, believe it or not. Huh. Um, they they love some milk chocolate. And one of the reasons we put that in there is because we'd run into a number of dog teams over the years um, who'd had issues with chocolate in the field. Wow. Interesting. That's, yeah, yeah that's interesting. interesting. Yeah. So, uh, I'm writing all this down so I can go back and mess <laughs> with it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And Scott, my partner, he's a big, huge proponent of, um, individual odors. Um, and you know, once we get a final response on an odor through imprinting, then we move on to what Scott or and I call shapes or what we, other people go hunt or whatever you want to call it. 
But, you know, and like Eric just mentioned, if we have a dog that kind of balks a little bit, then it's pretty clear that we need to back up and whatever else. But, you know, we have – I've messed around with a, an entire litter that we had about imprinting one way versus imprinting another way. Um, and then, you know, I did a method that I was 100% certain was awful. Um, and I, I've determined that it was awful. Um, there's a reason we don't do it anymore. And then I used what I would consider a modern method in those puppies – turned out to be, you know, great little detection dogs. Um, so, you know, I think you're right. And, you know, the undercurrent here is that, you know, we're always pushing, 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 pushing faster, 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 faster. How do we do it faster? How do we do it faster? And, um, some of that does go back to selection, um, but which we're not really going to cover here, but in the end, if it's assuming you, assuming you have that side down, you know, I think, it's probably the best course of action to, to separate odors and not do it how we do, like you say, a stew. And um, Scott has a very long explanation as to why we do that. Um, but, you know, it does help us isolate specific behaviors and it do, or specific odors, and it does help us isolate. Um, because, you know, for whatever reason, certain odors and certain explosive odors at, at high amounts and weight are, are very overpowering, and then you could have the same molecular weight of a certain explosive, and it is not near as overpowering as another one. And, you know, we mess around with vapor pressures and all this other stuff that we can do individually manipulate with single odors that we can't do if you've got 14 or however many you're doing at a time. So um, that's good. I mean, that's kind of one thing that – that I hoped you were going to talk about, and you did. So, <laughs> congratulations. Yeah, you know, we, we we got into um, we I say we in the you know United States. We, we sort of got into detection dogs and 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 really got things going. Uh, you know, what thirty forty years ago, and then you know it, it grew and grew and grew, and then after nine eleven, it sort of exploded with bomb dogs, and um, you know, it was very surprising to us that we had. We, we as an industry had really been in this business for such a long time uh, uh, and, and cranking out so many detection dogs that are, you know, vitally important, obviously, with bum dogs to the safety of, of, of the U.S. and this and that and the other. And, uh, you know, without um, having a lot of real solid answers uh, to a lot of the questions. So a lot of our um, detection um, what we do in regards to selection, what we do in regards to training, what we do in regards to imprinting, skills training, proofing, et cetera, is, is a, a majority of it is based on research uh, and based on, uh, you know, issues we've seen in the past and <clears throat> trying to find new approaches and how to fix it, make sure we don't have those things recurring, obviously. Awesome. So once you guys get through the kind of the initial, uh, so when you guys have classes, are the handlers part of the imprinting process or are the dogs done through the imprinting phase? No, these dogs are finished. Okay. Yeah, the way we do it, uh, we bring the handler in, and when the handler starts, um, that dog could, um, the first day the handler starts, that dog could be uh, operational with uh, one of our trainers. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah that, with one that, of our trainers, not necessarily uh, with his new handler, but right. You know that that's that's sort of how Scott and I do it too. I mean, that or they're very very close to being at that point. So once you're past that initial imprinting phase, you know, and this is something that I that I see a lot. Um, I've had people, both Eric and I, have had people try and sell us dogs that are quote unquote done on all four odors for narcotics or whatever, or on six odors for 
um, explosives and anything else. And you're like, okay, great. And um, the episode that I'm getting ready to reference hasn't aired. It'll air next week. Um, it Eric and I interviewed Pat Nolan. Um, and he brought up a very interesting point about discrete presentation versus indiscreet presentation. And, and, you know, it didn't click until he explained it in that terminology, but I see a ton of dogs that are imprinted or sent to me as, you know, ready to basically kind of finish off. And those dogs can find odor if it's in a box on the floor. <laughs> so yeah. you know i yeah. mean they, you have to have a very very that wouldn't discreet... be our definition of finished well no and but they're sold that way and i'll see and I, to be honest i mean you know when you look at certification standards and certifications in general a lot of them revolve around a lot of weights and very discreet presentations um and it kind of got me thinking a while ago about um how people transition off of um out of the imprinting phase because you know i i try and not because i want to hurry but i try and and i do this in bite work too i try and get past the imprinting phase if i see the dog giving us a final response on odor and starting to separate distraction odors once they're in the later process i'll move them to what i call shapes or highly productive areas or whatever as soon as i can and and on my side that's where a bulk of my training is is teaching the dog where to look how to look everything else and you know, I see a ton of dogs that come to us either to be fixed or to be finished that there is a, there's a mountain, there's a, there's an entire sea of trainers in this country that can start a dog on a ball popper, but can't make the transition to something else. So, you know, I mean, and Scott says it best, you know, we're teaching the dog two different behaviors. We're teaching them one to find odor and identify and everything else. And two, we're teaching them to actively hunt for it, which I think a lot of people kind of miss. So when you guys do that process, how does that kind of look? Well, what we do is we, you know, we start with imprinting uh, and we make sure that uh, this dog is fluent on odor. Uh, it's it's in that 60 to 75 minute range of what we do to play it safe and we always err on the side of caution with, with a lot of this uh is we make sure it's got at least 75 minutes um time of contact on an odor uh and at that point what we do is we move into behavior shaping um so we start to build the indication on the odor so prior to that 75 minute mark on imprinting we've not really focused at all uh, on trying to shape or build a behavior uh, as an indication. Um, so uh, we generally uh, will start that next. Um, and when we start that process, uh, that's when we really start throwing in um, a lot of a lot of controls, a lot of distractors um, in the dog's environment as it's working. Um, as far as indication goes, we generally teach a freeze and lock. Uh, we've been doing it for years uh, in, in lieu of a, a sit uh, or other passive indication. Uh, we had a lot of people years ago sort of make fun of us because uh, the dog didn't sit. Uh, but now we're starting to see some people, at least some in the industry, sort of mimicking what we what we did or following along and uh, but we still yeah, get we, we just did one like that for a, we just did one like that for a local department, and that the handler actually requested that. So I mean, 
Oh, really? Okay. He, 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 and, you know, he went to one of our cleat certifiers here that um, is not what I would consider the highest speed individual in the world. And was like, well, that dog won't sit. And we, there was an entire discussion about what a change of behavior actually is versus versus what it means for case law and everything else. But, yeah, I mean, so, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, we find yeah. a lot of we, – we found over the years there's a ton of, uh, in our opinion, a ton of advantages um, to that freeze and lock versus the um, versus a sit or something else, a down or whatever it may be, scratching, obviously. Um, right. But um, we, we found that to be – pretty advantageous in a lot of operational environments and again that's our end goal is is how does this dog perform in operational environments um so you know we start throwing a lot of controls a lot of a lot of distractors at the dog um uh, when we begin uh, that behavior shaping or skills training process uh to to get that behavior and we really sort of uh hammer down on that and 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 drive that message home to the dog um we really focus on trying to um, uh, sort of talk the dog into making a lot of mistakes at that point. Uh, we see a lot of young trainers, a lot of handlers who get super frustrated, um, particularly in the training phase of a detection dog when that dog makes a mistake. Uh, they're like, yeah, but the dog is wrong. Yeah, but, you know, our our philosophy is the dog will learn just as much from a wrong answer as they will uh, from a right answer. Um, if the dog makes the right decision and it gets paid or reinforced for it, it learns that that'll get it paid and reinforced. If a dog makes the wrong choice and nothing happens as a result, um, you know, it's learning just as much from that as it would if it got the, uh, made the right answer. And, and we've seen so many people over the years set up uh, detection training problems and detection training processes where the dog is only afforded the opportunity to give us uh, the correct response. They never learn what's wrong, uh, and that's one of the real uh, key things for us that's important in training detection dogs is we want to make sure the dog understands the target odor we want them to find, but we also want them to understand that they have to ignore all of this other stuff in their environment because in operational environments, they're going to be exposed to it. So right now, so in that in that philosophy, because I, I do it the same way, um, when the dog makes the wrong decision, um, I do nothing. I wait them out. Yeah. They will get up and move. Um, that's mm-hmm. the way I do it. I don't know if that's the way you're – what you're talking about, the way you do it, is nothing happens when they make that wrong decision, but then it happens when they actually do find the right one. I just – I tell the handlers, I go, just wait. We'll just wait them out, and you'll see the – dog will sit there and he'll get up and go yeah it's pretty much a, the same approach we're taking to it yeah uh we, we we ignore the behavior um we'll let him sit there and stare at that box or bark at it or dig at it or whatever he wants to do with it uh when it's the wrong one uh, you know in those initial mm-hmm. uh stages of training just let him let him go at it and the longer he goes at it uh the longer it's going to be ingrained in his brain uh, that that did not work. And and as such, what we typically see is when they when they do that and, and they're, you know, give us that behavior or series of behaviors, whatever it may be, and they don't get paid for it and nothing positive comes out of it for them, 
what we see in a pretty short period of time is they just quit trying. Uh, yeah. and, and we start to see those mistakes and uh, errors go away. And you bring up a kind of an interesting point and kind of an undercurrent here. Um, I see a lot of guys that are what I call just uber, uber clean. You know, they wear, they wear a glow. I mean, like everything is completely sterile and they're super, super sterile with the way they handle odor. They're super sterile with the way it's stored, which I'm all about storing it correctly and handling it correctly and safely and everything else. But to the point that um, the dogs that I see that are trained that way, have come in and they have a huge problem separating anomalous odor from actual target odor. Um, and they are never exposed on purpose. I, I can only assume to, um, like you're saying, environmental odors, like just random human odor or, you know, and of course we proof off of plastic bags and rubber bands and, you know, all the normal stuff. Um, and, but, you know, is, is this at the point where you guys are introducing, I mean, obviously they're working out in the, out in the environment. So are you purposely putting down distractor odors or are you making the source odor overwhelming so that it's fairly straightforward so that they ignore everything else and then lowering the amount or how are you guys doing that? No, we're, we're making the, well, we, we eventually get a point where even in this beginning part of, of training right after imprint, uh, we're getting in there and putting, tons of distractors in you know if, if we're still working a dog on the boxes and we're shaping behavior and the dog's learning that aspect uh of of the program um for example we may have 15 or 20 boxes out at times um uh, four of those boxes may be full of tennis balls uh two of them may be full of dog food um and most every box is going to be full of something or is going to contain something that's a wrong choice. Uh, it's not just a bunch of blank, empty boxes sitting there with odor in one of them. Because, uh, again, going back to what I mentioned earlier, that's just that's just giving the dog a lot of options, but only one, uh, you know, one correct option. We're, we're, we're giving them two choices. Go out and find an odor or go out and find nothing. And if you find nothing, you're not going to get paid. If you find the odor, you will. Yeah, um, um, that kind know. of goes back so to what I was. So that decision is just too easy. It's just, just too simple for the dog. Um, so we're saying, hey, you got to bypass food um, and black powder. If you're a drug dog, you got to you got to walk past this black powder uh, to get to uh, the cocaine odor uh, that's going to pay you. Yeah, we will have individuals walking around in the middle of this. We'll have we may have dogs walking around in the middle of this. Um, our place is a bit of a farm, uh, so we've got you know cats running around and all sorts of stuff going on uh, all the time. So these dogs have to learn to work through some um, environmental uh, challenges pretty early on. That's uh, it's interesting you mention that because you know your dogs are done by the time that handlers show up, and ours are too. And one thing that we do that I know you guys do too is you teach a, a, an independent search. So you know basically the handlers there just to hold a leash, and and when the when the dog's ready, he'll let him know. And you know I try and do all the bad habits that all handlers do, like moving their hands around and velcro on their pants and stomping their feet and moving around. So 
if you watch all those videos, people are always like, why are you moving around and throwing shit around and doing everything else? I'm like, because there's going to be some idiot handler that's handling this dog down the road that is going to do all these bad habits because somebody told you to do it or whatever else. So by the time that um, we get to where I turn the leash over the dog, like by the time I start tapping stuff, the dogs are completely ignoring my hands or completely ignoring what I'm doing. And they just go to work and when they find out or they sit. But it's interesting you mentioned that because you've got other dogs walking around. I've seen a ton of the videos. In fact, I think it was at the conference I saw and I've seen them online too where you'll have 15 students there standing on top of the boxes, bouncing tennis balls, you know, doing any number of weird stuff that is going on. You know, they've got food. They're trying to give the dog food. They're doing two all kinds of stuff in an effort to try and draw them off. And it makes a huge difference. Uh, you know, I learned the hard way that that you have to do that. I had to fix a couple of my own dogs that I screwed up back in the day. But, um, you know, it, that makes a huge difference down the line because, you know, I mean, at that point, the handler, all he's got to do is walk behind the dog and just wait. <laughs> I mean, yeah. go, find, go find it and just watch him. When he sits, you're the dumbass with the thumbs. When he needs your help, he'll let you know. Yeah, drive the car and do the report. Exactly. <laughs> I want to talk about something near and dear to my heart. That's the Police Canine Association or PK9A. They were formed in 1985 by handlers for handlers. They're a 501c3 nonprofit that helps support active and retired canine units through fundraising and the sale of some badass merchandise. Please take a minute to check out their newly designed website at www.pk9a.com. That's pk9a.com. I've been a member there for 13 years and the current training director there. I can tell you there are some big things in the works to expand the nonprofit to help canine units all over. If you're on Instagram, check them out for some amazing content at Police Canine Association or Police Canine Association on Facebook. This episode is brought to you by Highland Canine Training, LLC. They offer total solutions for law enforcement and military organizations to meet their increasingly demanding canine needs. Connect with them and see the difference. At TacticalPoliceCanineTraining.com, that's Tactical Police, the letter K, the number 9, Training.com. Guys, they're fucking good. Let me hop in here and talk about our one of our sponsors for the podcast, Southern Coast Canine, based out in New Smyrna, Florida. Southern Coast Canine has been providing better training, better results, and better dogs for over 25 years. Led by Bill Heiser and known for their excellent high-drive dual-purpose and detection dogs and outstanding customer service. They have what you want and what you are looking for. Call one 973 dogs that's 877-903-3647 and speak with Bill and to discuss your canine needs today. Or visit southerncoastcanine.com. That's the letter K, the number 9. Follow them on Facebook and Instagram at Southern Coast Canine, the letter K, the number 9. So, Jason, <laughs> one subject we have not asked a single person on the Working Dog Radio podcast is the use of pseudo-odors. Where do you fall in okay. that? Um, we're, we're a little different. I'll be honest with you. We have, um, we use, we use scent logic, a product called scent logics. Um, mm-hmm. we've been using scent logics now for, uh, I would say pretty close to somewhere in the range of eight, nine years. Uh, we were, we were in on it pretty early on. Uh, I say in on it, in on its use. Um, uh, and, and we use, we use that a lot for research. Uh, we, we, we use it training dogs. We use it for imprinting. We use it for skills training. Um, we have dealt for years and years and years with people who are very skeptical 
um, of the use of chemically formulated uh, a chemically formulated training aid in lieu of you know the real thing. Um, but we firmly do believe that um, using ScentLogix gives us, us an opportunity to build a detection dog uh, that's better than one that we would uh, be able to by using real materials. Um, it's about I'm glad I asked a, that. <laughs> it, it's about a eight-hour explanation, and I'm pretty right. sure <laughs> your podcast won't hold all that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, we like we, – we, we, I thoroughly enjoy um, having an opportunity to uh, teach people about advantages of chemi- uh, chemically formulated training aids, uh, particularly scent logics. You know, again, we have found it to be um, uh, really better than the real thing. Uh, the clean odor technology that's used with it, um, you know, gives us an opportunity um, to teach the dog exactly what we want without any garbage or trash or uh, that sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, we've had handlers come to us over the years. Um, a good friend of mine here uh, in the county uh, got a drug dog from us about four years ago, uh, give or take three or four years ago. It was imprinted, all this maintenance training up until the time he got it was done on Scent Logics. Uh, he's a big interdiction guy. He's probably one of the better ones on the East Coast. He teaches all over the country. Um, uh, and um, he actually teaches at our place from time to time, but he's full time with the Sheriff's Department here. Uh, and he was really skeptical about this dog. It was his, I don't remember, either second or third dog, a little black lab named uh, Abby. And um, he's like, I just don't know about this. Uh, well, he uh, he showed up the first day at handler school uh, with four or five pounds of marijuana, uh, real stuff, and he took it and hit it, and he says, I want to see this dog find it. And uh, uh, we grabbed the dog up, uh, worked her on uh, the problem and she knocked it out of the park. Um, uh, and he was, he was pretty much sold. He was about 80% sold at that point. That wasn't enough mm-hmm. for him. I don't think right away to prove it to him. Um, so he has access to lots of big quantities of real stuff. And every day, you know, or every couple of days, he's bringing new stuff up here and dogs just knocking it out, knocking it out, knocking it out. And, uh, he ends up hitting the street with his dog. And I think he had a, right around a two kilo cocaine seizure. Um, within the first, I want to say first couple of days, but uh, conservative, I can say uh, the first week. Uh, and that was it. You know, it was, the deal was sealed at that point. He, he, he saw it with his own eyes. The proof was in the pudding. Uh, and we've had success story after success story using chemically formulated training aids uh, and dogs going out immediately into the field and finding stuff. I mean, we can just time and time and time again, um, so we, you know, we don't question it anymore. Um, we're sort of advocates of it. Um, we uh, we don't have any business necessarily any business connection. We're, we're not selling stock for Synthologics or Polymath, but uh, we're just big believers in it because we've seen the results. I have a I have two interesting stories about it. Um, the first is we did a bomb dog um, that I mean we use. Um, actual odor both for narcotics and explosives um we had a bomb dog that we did that 
um, came back for recertification and we were running him on the boxes. And like you said, you know, you're running the explosives dogs or the, you know, the, the narcotics dogs and they have to go past black powder to get to whatever. Right. So they're being exposed to, you know, background odor at that point. Um, for whatever reason at the time, this dog would alert on marijuana. And I was completely, I thought I had a contamination with the box. I thought all kinds of stuff, right? Like the normal stuff you go through. Um, come to find out, uh, upon inspection, uh, that sample that we had had traces of ammonium nitrate in it from fertilizer and the dog was able to pick up on it. So it's kind of interesting given our previous conversation on like separating out odors, but the dog was able to alert on, and I, I was floored because, um, we ran him on scent logics, um, marijuana and he didn't even care like he was just you know it was a no big deal it was like a no-brainer the other thing right now there's two bed bug dogs i keep talking about um are for the same customer um and they asked me from the get-go to do one dog exclusively through the imprinting and through the hpa phase on scent logics and the other one on actual bugs and I'm about ready to cross them. They're they're both getting to the point where they're good enough um, and doing what I want them to do that I think I can expose one to the other and vice versa. Um, and I videoed the process along the way, and it's I think this is by the time this airs, they'll probably be um, close. They'll be done by this point. Um, but this is I think this is the first time I, I told Eric about it. I think but this is the first time I've actually talked about it. But uh, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, because with the dead, with the bug side, I've had to proof them off of the dog, off of dead bugs, off of dog, bug feces and whatever else. And with the scent logic side, I haven't had to do that. Um, Gina, the dog that is on the fake bugs, I mean, she runs around and she, she won't alert on dead bugs because I've had dead ones out uh, when she's around and she won't. Um, so uh, I And is that, the, is that the dog that you imprinted on scent logic? No, right, she's the one that has been printed, printed on SendLogic. She will not alert on live on dead bugs. And the other dog so far will. Um, so I have some that are dead, and I have some that are alive. And I, I and so it's been so from from my perspective for doing bed bug dogs at least for right now. It is way faster to do it with scent logics because I'm not having to proof dogs off of anything except normal stuff like containers, like the stuff that I would normally have to do off of proofing them off of anyway. Um, I don't have to have an extra step. So um, I don't know. Maybe by the time this airs, I'll have the finite answer between the dog that was imprinted on scent logics moving her onto live bugs and see how it goes. Um, I suspect that she's probably not going to have an issue. So. Um, but they, they yeah, specifically, I can, uh, I can they tell you how that one's going to go. We've already done that one a number of times. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are creeping yeah, we me actually, out, by the way, with all this bug talk. Oh, it's their gross. I was, uh, I was actually, uh, we, we were actually sort of in on the beginning of that uh, with David um, to, to, to help him uh, develop that bed bug training aid. Um, we weren't, we weren't in his little bat cave or lab or, or whatever. We were, we were doing some work in the field, uh, to help him develop that. We trained a number of dogs on bed bugs, um, against those components, uh, particular training aid. Um, you know, we used to have bed bugs all over the place that we were using to train dogs and, 
and you know since since we helped with that research and he was able to develop that aid we don't have to do that anymore yeah. um we've done a lot of research testing that aid against so we did it both ways we trained the dogs on the real bugs and tested them against the aid and the development of it and then after it was produced we tested again and then we then we went the other way we imprinted dogs on the aid and tested them against real bugs uh and what we found was the dogs won't find the dead ones yeah uh, they won't find the bug waste uh and they will find uh down to uh, one bug believe it or not uh, in a um, in a container pretty good substantially sized container uh and we videoed it. we videoed all that too uh, anytime we do research, we video every bit of it because you got a lot of naysayers and haters in this industry, obviously, and um, video is hard to hard to dispute. So we're pretty careful about video and all of it. So. Excellent. That's uh, you know, and I I just watching the way that this is going down, like I sort of suspected that that was going to be the outcome of this. Um, and when I turn these dogs back over to the owners, um, I'll just going to flat out tell them you don't have to have bugs. <laughs> like you don't got to keep bugs around. Like you can just keep the fake ones and you don't yeah. have to worry about them getting loose in the house or anything gross. So, uh, I'm but, itching. You guys are making me itch. Oh, it's disgusting. Scott refuses to touch him. Every time I pull him oh. out, he just kind of looks at me and makes a face and he was like, uh, uh-uh, I'm not doing it. I'm like, that's not <laughs> so are you, you feeding those yourself? Oh no, they're supposedly, uh, you know, they can, they can live. I, they say they can live for a year without eating. I'm going to test that out. <laughs> so, yeah the uh, yeah and that's lab. another thing we you know we've looked at is you know and, and just sort of getting into the science of it uh you know a lot of people who who train and 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 handle bed bug dogs on a regular basis have bed bugs and a lot of those people will use um you know hairless rats and hairless rabbits and, and that's what they use to feed their bugs um we always fed our bugs uh human blood uh because we believed that there would be a a clear difference in the odor produced by the bug if it was fed on a human versus an animal. Um, so, you know, that, that raises a big question. Uh, so we always had to feed our own bugs. Oh, my God. Oh God. Oh, yeah, cool. I'm, out. I'm out on that. I don't mind getting bit by dogs. I'll get bit by dogs all day long, but I'm out on bugs. <laughs> yeah, fortunately, we fortunately now we we've got that scent logic training. Maybe we don't have to deal with them anymore. So. Yeah, and you know that's a question. We're going to actually have Ted Dawes on. Uh, we're interviewing him next week, and I'm not going to specifically ask him about this. But my issue has always been with it. Um, it's always been with the narcotics side, and it's never been an, a question of efficacy to me. Um, I've it been, I've seen it work. Um, I don't use it, but I, I've seen it work. I know it does. Um, you know, I, I think the undercurrent and the fear for a lot of the handlers listening to this that are law enforcement handlers is the one attorney that's, you know, they start asking the question like, well, how was the dog imprinted? Now, I, granted, most attorneys, and I don't even care if they hear this or not, aren't that smart. And they're not like, they don't teach you about dog training in, in, in college or in law school. And a lot of those guys have quote unquote expert witnesses that are come that go to the dark side and testify and whatever else. So to me, it's always been in question not of efficacy of whether the product works or doesn't work. I mean, it's clear that it does, but it's always been one of how do departments and handlers justify that after the fact in training records, especially with, you know, Florida versus Harris and and the seventh circuit case that came out a couple of years ago with training records and everything else. 
how do they justify the use of a chemically formulated tranate? Yeah, the, because the argument is, and this is not one that I necessarily agree with, but this is what they say. They say that it's not real. The dog was taught to find a substance that is legal, and then how do you, how can you separate out? Like if a dog gives you alert on the car, it gives you probable cause. How can you then make the argument that you know that 100 percent that it's that it is not? I mean, the chances of a shithead being in possession of Scent Logic's cocaine is probably not that good, <laughs> but. Yeah. I mean, you know, and they're looking for a grain of reasonable doubt to to call into question probable cause. And that has always been my fear, not necessarily mine, but it's been a lot of Scott's fear and a lot of not necessarily us together, but and the industry as a whole, that has been a huge fear. And to be honest, they haven't done a whole lot to dispel that. Well, and, and as far as I know, it's never been challenged. That particular has not been challenged. But, you know, again, um, you know, a lot of that comes, in, in my opinion, and again, this is my opinion, a lot of that debunking that uh, particular argument is going to come through education and having a real solid understanding of what we're doing. Uh, because with detection dogs, what, we've, what, we, what we do soon uh, lose sight of, if we're not careful, is that we're training these dogs um, – to find an odor, not a material. Exactly. Uh, That's the whole to, presence of versus we, the odor of argument, yeah. Yeah, we've got to separate in our mind um, pretty clearly and pretty early on uh, in order for this stuff to make sense that, um, you know, the dogs aren't being trained to find a material. We've got to separate the material and the odor because the material is not, and the odor are not one and the same. Um. Is scent logics the same material as marijuana? The answer is no. Is the odor the same? Uh, and we know the answer to that, and that's why it works. Um, so, you know, if asked the question in court, uh, do you know what, did you use a real material to train this dog? The answer clearly is going to be no. Um, but if the question's rephrased a little bit, and did you use real odor, then, you know, by all beliefs, we our answer would be yes. Yeah, that's right. the whole. No, that's that's the that's the that's the that's the argument of the odor of versus the presence of, which is, you know, why this is also the answer to the whole. Well, why does a dog alert and there's nothing there? And then through subsequent questioning, they're like, oh yeah, you know, my buddy is and I just smoked a huge bong at the house and got in the car and created enough for transfer and everything else. So you still have the odor of, but not the presence of. And right. Um, I think a lot of people freak. And then the other side of that, too, is that, you know, yeah, so the dog was imprinted on scent logics and used scent logics for at post certification. Uh, once the dog was delivered to the department, he worked for six years on the street and he was never exposed to it again. And he has, you know, whatever six years times 12 months is of training records where, and then actual deployments where the dog is, is alerting on actual odor. So, you know, it, it, is more of a records keeping thing more than anything else is what I tell my handlers. And, you know, and I think, and you're right, it hasn't been challenged and I don't know if it will. Um, but it ultimately that's, that is, I think the crux of the argument with most people and why they freak out about it. And I think you gave a very good, uh, a very good explanation as to why, um, it should be considered legitimate, I guess. Yeah. And, and, you know, two, two things to that. One, you know, 
why does the dog respond and there's nothing there? Because we know that residual odor remains, and that's another research project we did. You know, we've, oh, yeah. we've over the years since since I was a handler back in the mid '90s. You know, I was here, and uh, odor can stay in the car uh, for a week. Uh, uh, odor can stay in the car for a month. Odor can stay in the car for two days. Uh, and everybody had their own idea of how long it was going to be there. Um, you know, so the question for us was, you know. Who's right? You know, how long does it actually stay there? Because, you know, as best we could tell, there's never been any um, valid research to, to find out exactly how long an odor would stay based on its substrate. So we, we did, um, we spent quite some time with that, um, testing dogs against different substrates with different odors. Um, we were doing that every four hours. Um, so um, we, that made us pretty cranky uh, after a week. Uh, getting up there for two hours, obviously. Yeah. Um, but we, we we came up with some pretty interesting, um, pretty interesting numbers on that. Uh, and to be honest, we we didn't we didn't complete the research. We quit. Um, uh, we gave up uh, after uh, about twenty eight days. Uh, we we decided we knew enough. Um, <laughs> long we, enough is the answer. <laughs> yeah, long enough was the a answer. While. Absolutely. Yeah. But you know, and, and to your to your other point there uh, about this argument of the utilization of chemically form, uh, chemically formulated training aid, particularly a good one, uh, and they're not all the same. And we've done some research on that and, and, and here in the U.S. and abroad, and found that that's not the case. But uh, you know, to be honest with you, I can come up with. For, for that one argument of you use this and the dog's finding that, I can come up with 50 others uh, for those who are using real materials uh, in court to trip them up. Uh, and, you know, handlers need to be just as prepared for that, to be honest with you. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, and there, yeah, go ahead, Eric. I, I would call, if for those of you listening to this have never sat through one of David's classes, when you're done, you would understand that if you called David into court, there's not an attorney around that's going to be smart enough to deal with him. There's, there's no way. <laughs> uh, and a judge no. too. If he's, you're doing... he's chomping at the bit. To, oh, he's chomping yeah. at the bit to, to get in, get get in there and. Uh, that is not a fight you want to have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, but he's yeah, never been called as far as I know. But he's yeah, and if you have the that comes. right, and if it's a suppression hearing, um, the judge at the end is going to be like, oh, "Holy crap!" Yeah, okay, David, David would definitely pass a Dauber hearing. That I know. Yeah. <laughs> that he has the yeah, he has yeah, the potential to sure. set he has the potential to set case law. You yeah, know, well, w- yeah. when when the time comes, David has the potential to set it up for everybody, so it's a moot point. Yeah, and yeah. I, I mean, oh, absolutely. That is the elephant in the room. That and you know we have it hasn't been tested. It hasn't, and you know, like it goes back to I, I don't have a very fond, um, uh, I don't have a very fond. <laughs> Uh, taste for attorneys and uh, for attorneys in general and especially when they kind of go about how they do how they deal with canine and, as, as a whole as a whole from how they prosecute it how they question it how they view it i mean i have friends of mine that are attorneys that they say dogs are just walking probable cause and which i think is an oversimplification but you know i think you're right i mean and i think that day is coming and that's one thing i want to ask ted dawes about next week when we interview him and because um, he has some pretty interesting views on it, um, but 
you know, I, I do think it's coming. And like I said, it's never been a question of efficacy for me because a lot of people, you know, they get in, they get way out in the weeds about whether it works or whether it doesn't work. And it's like, well, fuck, it's been around for 12 years or however long he's been doing it. And it's been shown, I don't know how many, like everywhere there are dogs that use this stuff, it works and it has never been challenged here, but you know, it's never been a question of efficacy for me. It never has been. It's always been a question of legality. And it's one that, you know, I don't want to be the guy that sets policy. <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, nobody well, yeah. does. But, nope. uh, you know, again, like I said, there's a lot of ways to, um, there's a lot of, and, and this comes from experience, a lot of easier way. I say experience because we do, um, uh, getting back to our handler training. And, and that's one of the big things we focus on, um, when our handlers come through a, a handler school, uh, one of the things we do is we set up scenario-based training for them, uh, traffic stops, that sort of stuff. Uh, we make them work the dog. Uh, you know, we, we present them with a situation. We make them make decisions. We, we, they may or may not deploy their dog depending on the legalities of it. Um, and we do that for a few days. And then after about three day, two or three days of that, uh, we actually take them into the courthouse in uniform with a good friend of ours, Lawrence County, he's up in Washington County, Tennessee. He's actually an attorney and a dog handler for the Sheriff's Department. Um, and he comes down and he's the, uh, the prosecuting attorney, uh, and I'm the defense attorney. And we put these guys on the scene and we make them testify to what they did on those cases. And from that experience, I can tell you, there's a lot easier stuff um, to trip handlers up on uh, without ever picking a fight with David at a Bimpe. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. That, that is a hundred percent. I mean, yeah, that, that I a hundred percent agree with for sure. So you mentioned something that is really, um, that I kind of wanted to move into also is how you train the handlers also. So, I mean, just from who I know works for you and how you guys okay. know what you do and, you know, um, the, the handling philosophy that you guys teach i kind of touched on a minute ago and you know kind of talk about how you run through these guys how they handle the dogs not necessarily like what the certificate or not certification what the um standards are for deployments and everything else but in terms of letting the dog search independently staying out of their way that kind of stuff yeah well our handler school is a bit unorthodox to be honest with you it's it's it's, it's a little counter to what we we have seen uh in the industry in that um, first uh, day and a half, two days of handler school, uh, handlers never put their hands on a dog, uh, other than to take it to the bathroom and maybe feed it. Um, they start off in the classroom, uh, and we do put a massive emphasis on the classroom portion of it. We want these guys to have a foundation of knowledge and understanding of operant conditioning, understanding of the timing and reinforcement schedules, and all sorts of stuff that can get them in a lot of trouble if they don't have at least some basic understanding of it when they start working a dog, um, you know, we shoot for, and it's, it's, it's mission impossible. I'll tell you, but we shoot for air free learning. Um, people are going to make mistakes. We plan for those and we work to counter them before they ever happen. Um, but we start these guys off in a classroom. We have a pretty well-developed curriculum. They get a book, um, the first day of class. Uh, I know for a lot of guys that doesn't doesn't sound appealing. It uh, doesn't sound real cool or sexy. 
Um, but what we have found by doing it the way that we do is we produce far more effective teams um, because they do have a solid understanding of it. And then, uh, you know, after a couple of days of that, uh, we're putting a leash in their hand. Uh, we're making them run blind hides from day one uh, while they're here at the handler school, particularly on the detection side of things, uh, whether it's a single or a dual dog. Um, they're not going to ever run a detection problem while they're here where they know where the aid is because we know uh, that we've done – uh, a good enough job with this dog uh, that even if the handler makes a ton of mistakes, uh, the dog's still going to make the right decision. Because uh, that's, you know, one of our processes in proofing is to, uh, I think some sort of you either mentioned or alluded to earlier, we teach the dog that the handler uh, is basically going to lie to him. Uh, yeah, <laughs> he's gonna I tell him that all the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the dog's already learned that you're going to give him bad information and lie to you. So if he blows you off and ignores you in a protection problem, don't take it personal. So, um, you know, we, we teach uh, canine case law, um, first aid care maintenance. Um, uh, we, we probably do 10 to 12 hours of lecture on trailing and learning to read dogs uh, in detection and in trailing, uh, understanding how odor behaves, understanding how dogs work through odor, uh, and trying to set these guys up. Uh, we're not trying to make them trainers in a short period of time. That is not our goal at all. But our goal is to give them enough information to um, be able to problem solve. Because I don't care who you are. I don't care how good you are. You get paired up with a new dog and you hit the street. At some point, you're going to run into a, a, a hiccup or a bump somewhere. And, you know, how you deal with that hiccup or bump uh, is going gonna, is gonna to make a difference. And we want handlers to have enough uh, information and enough knowledge um, to be able to make those types of decisions in a field environment. We see, we have seen, um, I have seen over the years, and and honestly, my first handler school, this is the way it worked. Uh, they handed me a leash the first day with a manual attached to it. Um, and they said, hey, come over here and I'm going to show you this and you just mimic what I do. Uh, okay, yeah. we'll move to the next one, and you mimic what I do. I'll show you this again. No, you didn't do that right. Do it this way. Uh, do it again. Do this, and just do what I do. So what I learned in my first handler school uh, years ago was how to mimic a dog trainer as best as I could with, with, with you know, little to no experience with working dogs. And, and I found out over the years that that, in my opinion, sucks a lot. Um, and that's not, the, that's not the kind of handlers we want to turn out, those that can mimic a dog trainer. We want to turn out handlers uh, who can make decisions on their own, uh, you know, understand best practices and how to employ them in the field and in training. Um, and, and it has just really worked for us over the years. Yeah, that sounds – that's a great, great approach. That's a great approach. I had a guy and- sitting in here last month, uh, been a dog handler for nine years, I think he was this dog he was getting was his third one. Uh, he sat through the first week of our school, and he came up to me on Friday right before he was heading home. He said, man, I was just going to tell you, um, I've been doing dogs for nine years. He said, I learned more sitting in this classroom about the mistakes I've made over the last nine years and why they occurred and how I could have addressed them and fixed them. Uh, you know, and, and I wished I would have known this stuff ten years ago. Yeah, 
One uh, of my goals I was telling Yoris the other night was when I retire, um, I'll have hand, you know, touched thousands of dogs. But my, one of my plans is when I retire to come through a course like yours so I can learn just what I didn't know or little things, you know, things that I messed up and, uh, and it's, it's really important to, uh, to definitely sit in the classroom and pay attention. Yeah, we put a lot of emphasis on uh, handler education because we, you know, we believe firmly that um, it's it's a marriage. You know, it's 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 fifty fifty, and you can't have one one half of it working harder than the other, uh, and and you don't necessarily want the better half <laughs> to be yeah. the dog. Uh, you know, we want the handler to be pretty pretty sharp as well. Good luck. <laughs> so, so real quick, I, I wanted to ask you something. So, back in the day, you were talking about um, that you started in labs back in the family business. I think it was back in the day. Um, I had more of a hobby, but yeah, yeah. We we in the United States have been accused over the years of ruining the German Shepherd breed. You know, as far as thing, you know, health and everything else. What what have we done to the labs? What have you seen different now than you see saw earlier? Uh, what you're seeing for you know because you know there's so many big companies now with government contracts that are trying to find every unicorn lab they can find and things like that. And have have we ruined the lab? Or are they still okay? Um, we've divided the Labrador, in my opinion. Again, just my opinion. We sort of divided the Labrador. Um, much like we did uh, the Border Collie um, in that, you know, they look very similar, but there's sort of two breeds of lab now, and it's just like there's sort of two breeds of Border Collie. Genetically, they're the, pretty much the same, but uh, we have created a uh, stocker working line lab, and then we've created the lay-on-your-couch lay kind of lab uh, that a lot of pet dog people want to buy. Uh, you know, there's pretty border collies who lay around the house and, and they're great for people. And those are, uh, there's those border collies that get out and, and, and work and just want to uh, be super active and, you know, chase after stuff and get in stuff. Um, and, and we've seen a pretty clear delineation of the two sort of over the years. Um, seems to be a decent shortage of, uh, good solid labs in the industry today uh due to some contractors and contracts and and government agencies they've somewhat been depleted it seems like and um you know the last couple of years we've invested in a breeding program for labs and um we're always getting calls about labs and you know finding them started to get harder and harder so we you know sort of developed a, a small stable uh breeding bitches and that sort of thing real solid ones that we acquired here and there and uh we're able to turn out some pretty pretty solid labs um but yeah they have they have changed they've been overbred um quote me on this but i'm going to be pretty close to it i think since 2008 uh you know the labrador has been the most popular breed based on akc registrations and people are going to breed them they know folks are going to buy them uh and as such uh they have in my opinion been overbred and and have made a lot of changes over the years yeah yeah what's what's the next one we're going to ruin uh, is it going to be short hair oh, pointers, we... or what are we going to ruin? 
<laughs> those with the least popularity are, are the safest. I'll be honest with you. It seems like we we really have ruined a lot of breeds. Look at the English bulldog. Uh, uh, they can't procreate without our help. They can't uh, have babies without our help. They can't. Mama can't hardly take care of puppies without our help. Um, you know, we've 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 morphed a lot of breeds uh, in our quest for genetic perfection over the years. We we have not done the best job at certain times. <laughs> Yeah, that's crazy. All right, you know what? This has been amazing. This interview has been really good, Jason. I, yeah, I, I I've learned a ton. I'm over here writing stuff down. I'm like, man, I'm just gonna have to call David and just suck it up and whatever. Um, so, real quick, Highland is, as Ted said earlier, nose to tail, full service. What do, What do you have coming up? You have a a, a long. So you have some big instructor school coming up, don't you? Uh, yeah, we, well, we do, um, we've got one coming out first Monday in April, um, but we run, uh, a number of programs. We have a school for dog trainers. That is a big part of our business here. Um, we get literally people from all over the world. We've hosted, um, graduates from, from, uh, 30 countries, um, so far. We started our school in 2006, uh, licensed by community college. We can accept, uh, GI Bill and VA benefits, 31, 33, 35 benefits. Uh, which was a big help uh, for uh, veterans and you know, military personnel, military families um, to get a portable job. Uh, it was one of the big things for them. Um, we've got a number of programs at our school for dog trainers, and one is our police canine instructor program. We've got six, eight, 12-week programs. Next one starting in April. Um, and then we run those 12-week programs four times a year. Uh, we've got a a uh, master program that runs twice a year. It's 24 weeks long. Uh, and then we've got uh, a service dog trainer program that's 18 weeks uh, that we also run twice a year, every January, July. So so, so this is, uh, I mean, potentially you're done with your class. You you're, you could start a business, like if you, or go work for somebody, or like for those those out there that maybe don't have the connections you know, coming out of law enforcement or whatever that want to train dogs, this is definitely an avenue for them. Yeah, absolutely. And we've had a lot of um, a lot of graduates of our programs either a start their own business um, or b uh, you know get into the industry working for somebody else. And you know, those who um, I can't say everybody that's ever graduated from our program has been successful in the industry because. You know, everybody's motivation is a little different. Um, but an overwhelming majority of those people who've come through the program uh, with an interest in getting into the industry one way or the other have been able to do so and have done pretty well with it. Yeah, getting that GI Bill usage is amazing. That's that's such a great opportunity. Yeah, and it pays their BAH for them, so their housing taken care of while they're here. You know, they get money for uh, uh, stipend for housing and meals and that sort of stuff while they're here. And their tuition is um, is covered uh, through their VA benefits. For those who don't have that, uh, you know, we do offer financing uh, as well because uh, it's you know it's a pretty pretty big investment for people at times, and and you know not everybody can come out of pocket with it. So we uh, we do offer financing for uh, people as well. So uh, that's awesome. That's awesome. So give us real quick everywhere someone can contact you. Everywhere. <laughs> well, let's start website. Let's start website. 
Yeah, let's hit the highlights. Um, our, we've got a number of websites. Uh, that's one of the things we you know, teach at our school, too. So uh, we spend a lot of time on our websites. Um, HighlandCanine.com is our main site uh, that has information about everything we do. Our business is pretty diverse, and, and that website covers all of it, from our service dog to our pet dog training to our police dog and that sort of stuff. Um, our police and military site that focuses specifically on that stuff is tacticalpolicecaninetraining.com, and it's letter K number nine. Um, and then we've got other other sites for specifically geared to our service dog programs. Our school, um, our school is internationaldogtrainerschool.com. So that's great. You and have the podcast. Media. Don't don't forget about the podcast. Uh oh. Yeah, and the podcast website. Yeah, um, dot com. We started that. That's been a project in the making for us for a year and a half, and we just got our first episode up about ten days ago. Doing pretty well, not as well as you guys, but uh, and we're glad <laughs> to see you guys doing well too. But uh, hopefully, we're aspiring to be like you when we grow up uh, with our so, podcast. <laughs> the, right, yours right. is uh, it covers. I mean, it's uh, kind of describe it like real quick what the the life of dogs it, is about. It's 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 quite different than one you guys got. Ours is more human interest stories that pertain to dogs. Uh, our first episode called "One Man's Trash." It talks about. Uh, three different dogs uh, with their people. Uh, one of them is a, uh, uh, a shepherd who was trained as a service dog uh, for a boy in Iowa with autism who ended up being featured in People magazine, cross-country, first, first kid to ever run uh, cross-country and compete in high school athletics in the state of Iowa. The second one is uh, uh, starts off with a dog that's chained to a tree that ended up being trained as a police dog, went to work in Vail, Colorado, a large ski towns in the u.s and then the third one is uh, a little dog that was a uh, 20 20 pound cockapoo who was a terrorist in his home and the owners got rid of him because they couldn't couldn't manage him and i wanted to see him going and uh you know live with somebody else ended up getting adopted by one of my trainers uh and since then he's gone on to do agility parkour he climbs trees and he's a four-time world uh dock diving competitor so oh, wow. <laughs> uh, he goes goes to the world championships most every year in dock diving, and he's a twenty three pound cockapoo. So not not the first dog that comes to mind when you think of dock diving. No, so, I love dock diving; it's great. Well, awesome, man! Uh, this has been fantastic. We covered quite a bit of stuff. I want to have you uh, back on to talk about something other than detection work. Um, to talk about some of the other phases of some of the police stuff. Um, so sure. we'll set that up in the future. But, yeah, um, hit them up, Highlands Canine Training, Facebook, Instagram. You guys are on Instagram also. Um, yeah. Then there's the websites, the multiple websites, and then go check out the podcast as well, Life of Dogs. Um, Jason, I appreciate it. It's been awesome. Yeah, absolutely. been a pleasure. Yeah. Yep, and we'll do it again. Perfect. Thanks again for having me on. Yep. Thanks, man. Thanks. Hey, let's get this finished up here. Southern Coast Canine, the letter K, the number nine dot com, sponsor for the episode. Southern Coast Canine offers canine handler, instructor, and trainers courses with a variety of seminars throughout the year. 
Visit them at southerncoastk9.com, the letter K, the number 9. Follow them on Facebook and Instagram for up-to-date courses and event schedules. 877-903-DOGS. That's 877-903-3647 to register and find out more about these excellent courses. Also, Southern Coast Canines has an immediate opening for a full-time multi-purpose canine trainer position, the MPC trainer position. If you want to join a winning team, contact them at the same Number or email your resume to P Heiser H E I S E R at Southern Coast Canine.com. The letter K, the number nine. Working Dog Radio is edited and co produced by Dustin Wright at Bracket Designs. Be sure to hit him up at bracketdesigns.com for any branding or content related work you have. We were graciously granted permission to use this rad music by Brother Deeg. Go buy him a beer at Brother Deeg, spelled D E G E, dot blogspot.com, spelled D E G E, or hit him up on iTunes, Amazon, CD Baby, or any other music streaming stores. Check the show notes for links to both of these creative geniuses.